there is not enough skill out there today to be able to handle compliance properly within an organization. You're listening to the B2B Revenue Executive Experience, a podcast dedicated to helping executives train their sales and marketing teams to optimize growth. Whether you're looking for techniques and strategies or tools and resources, you've come to the right place. Let's accelerate your growth in three, two, one. Welcome everyone to the B2B Revenue Executive Experience. I'm your host, Chad Sanderson. Today we're talking about data privacy, a subject that impacts marketing and sales on a daily basis, creates headaches and challenges, as many of you are probably aware. And the question becomes, how do sales and marketing teams continue to be effective as the regulatory environment continues to change? We all know about GDPR, the General Data Protection Regulation uh, in the EMEA, and it created a great deal of consternation for a lot of companies. There's also the upcoming California Consumer Privacy Act, which appears, and I don't know the details, but appears to be even stricter. To help us tackle this today, we've got Don Litzenberg, VP of Sales at To Be Advice. Don, thank you for taking time and welcome to the show. Thanks, Chad. It's great to be here today. So, yes, uh, I would love to talk to you about privacy. (laughs) All right. So before we jump into that, we like to start each show with a question just so people get to know you a little bit better. And so if you, if the people knew you just through work, what hobby or something that you're passionate about would surprise them? Would they not be aware of that might surprise them? So... That one's a little bit of a challenge for me. I tend to be an open book. And uh, as you well know, Chad, from uh, previous conversations, I would say the one that would be most surprising is that I tend to be a little bit of a fashionista. I pay attention to what's going on in the fashion world and, you know, uh, know things that I probably shouldn't like. The work that Chris, uh, Christian Bailey's done at Burberry or the work that Tom Ford did at Gucci, that kind of thing, his new line of products, et cetera. Wow, I didn't even know that. I mean, I knew you were into kilts, but I didn't know you were into fashion like that. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. All I right. have I have so, bought my wife every purse she's ever owned. Ah, all right. Yeah, I could we could spend a whole episode on that, brother, but I we'll, we'll move on. We'll move on. So, how about um give our audience some context to um, tell us what to be advice does. So to be advice is a privacy compliance company. Basically, we take a holistic view to privacy. We start with the opportunity to get involved from a consulting standpoint. We also offer the technology and software to get the job done. And additionally, we offer training. So that kind of overall holistic approach allows us to create a a situation where a company is not just bare minimum compliant, but committed to privacy in a way that looks good to regulators and to consumers alike. And to give you an idea of our underpinnings, uh, To Be Advice started in 2003. And to put that into perspective for you, in 2003, January of 2003, when To Be Advice started, Tom didn't have any friends yet on MySpace. (laughs) And it was going to be another six months before a highly adopted phone came out that had a camera on it, let alone access to the internet. Wow. So you guys are, I mean, you're in the throes of, I mean, privacy is a massive topic, right? And it's, it's shows up in business. It shows up in our personal lives. Everybody's curious about it, but especially on the business side, it's, it's, almost so regulated, but nobody seems to know exactly what those regulations are or what they mean. So when you start working with clients, 
is there a huge education component or do you find that companies are actively attempting to understand the regulatory environment around privacy compliance? I would say yes. You get a little bit of both or all of the above, if you will. And the key to this is that if you take a look at the stats, almost nobody's compliant. Even GDPR <laughs> uh, you know, went into effect in 2018. And, you know, less than 40% of companies are truly GDPR compliant. So really, as you take a look at privacy compliance and the overall kind of privacy ecosystem as it stands today, it's not a matter of hitting that checkbox. It's a journey towards compliance. And that journey is becoming increasingly complex and increasingly difficult. So yes, there is an education component to it. There's also a realistic business approach to it. If you read some of the stats, people will tell you that companies need to have 20 or 30 headcount working towards privacy. You and I both know it doesn't work like that. There's <laughs> that guy or that team of both that are doing all of the privacy compliance for companies that are sometimes hundreds of millions in revenue. And so they just don't have the resources in place to truly adopt privacy. So we have to help educate. We have to create a system and process that allows for many hands to make light work. And you and I have talked previously about the MarTech. What are we up to? 6,800 now? <laughs> probably, uh, almost probably 8,400 at this point. Crap. They just keep okay. sprouting. So, yeah. And, you know, in the time that we've talked, I'm sure there's another three companies that started in <laughs> right. the MarTech space. But uh, that is ever increasing. And sales guys are very effective as opposed to very, uh, shall we say, compliant, play by the rules, love process, you know, <laughs> love putting every detail into the CRM. Sales guys do what works well for them. And oftentimes, sales people will find an effective tool and they won't necessarily tell the person that's in charge of privacy. Oh, by the way, yeah, I do have a side subscription to these four tools that I use on a daily basis to prospect. And I've got my information stored in four different Excel spreadsheets. In addition to my, shall we say, bare minimum compliance with CRM. So it is hard to, as a single department or person come in and say, we're now your privacy guy and we know everything in our organization as it relates to privacy. With that said, we have to get privacy down to the levels where the information actually resides and the people who own it. You know, um, no sales guy is going to say, oh yeah, I don't own my data or I don't own my prospects, right? Marketing isn't going to turn around and disclose every tool they use as they market. And they're not going to tell you that, yeah, probably 40% of the information we hold is not information we should have anymore because those people have never responded to us. So let's flush that information out of the system. Privacy compliance is hard. So by giving the opportunity to get the people that are involved, involved with the information in a way that is simple for them and easy, doesn't require them to jump through multiple hoops and still manages to get that data up to the people who are held responsible for compliance with privacy is a difficult process. Well, and, and it's it's becoming critical. I remember, I, I may, and maybe I've got this wrong, but when GDPR came out, I think the first company to get fined was British Airways, if I remember correctly. And it was a significant hit. I mean, GDPR has got some pretty aggressive financial ramifications for failure to comply. Now, 
if businesses alone aren't worried about that, then you have the increasing awareness that consumers have of how they should protect their own data. Right. And I, especially I'm very familiar with this right now because I got robbed and they took my computer and my phone. And so all of a sudden, all of my data is no longer protected. It's not, it's on those devices. And if I didn't, you know, I, I set the thing so they blew up when everybody turned them on, but there's this fear of, holy crap, all this data is now on the loose, not only my personal data, but my business data and things of that nature. So there's this increasing awareness of it as well as potential business ramifications. And then the underlying complexity of changing human behavior, because like you said, sales and marketing people, yeah, we probably, I, I mean, I'll be honest, when I was an individual contributor, I was not, I was barely compliant. Shit. I wasn't even remotely compliant with the CRM. Who am I kidding? <laughs> right. And now it becomes even more strict. And so when you've got financial ramifications like that in GDPR, and now you've got the California Protection Act coming out, I hear that one is stricter. Do you know how it differs from GDPR? I do. In fact, I helped author a paper on exactly that subject. So I could speak to that for probably the next three episodes if you're interested. <laughs> I um, would love, I'd love where, an overview of how it's different. That'd be great. Some of the key differences, there's some differences in terminology. There's an idea in CCPA of household data that is not necessarily identifiable to a specific individual. Think of your nest smoke detector going off because you're a bad cook. Now, that's at the household level, but we can't necessarily say that Chad Sanderson's a bad cook. Audience, I'm not saying Chad's a bad <laughs> cook. I haven't eaten his, his cooking. But we can't say that... Uh, Chad was the person that caused it to go off. What we can say is potentially that the smoke detector went off every night at 5.30 p.m. for three months straight. And that's, uh, that's identifiable information to a household. So that's new in CCPA. There are some areas where there's private right to action, and that's a huge one for CCPA. I wouldn't say that it's stricter than GDPR. GDPR tends to be considered the gold standard, but that private right to action could be monumental in terms of what that means to businesses that want to do business with Californians. And the reason I say that is under GDPR, it's up to the 28 different EU countries that have their own data protection authorities to levy fines against companies that are seen to be out of compliance. And those authorities are kind of that single point of fine, if you will. Under CCPA, though, with the private right to action, everybody in California that is a lawyer can now bring suit against a company for the correct um, circumstances that allow for uh, private right to action. And now you could have many companies suing or you can have class action lawsuits. While GDPR limits fines to 4% of annual revenue, private right to action has no such limitations. So you could see massive, massive lawsuits taking place as companies get breached or as companies willfully choose to use information that they were not supposed to be using for that purpose recent uh, mess up, shall we say, by Twitter using the two-factor authentication phone numbers as a way to market to people would be an example of a potential private right to action. Wow. that I mean, that has massive ramifications. Now, the question becomes, where where are most companies, you know, what are they going to have to do when CCPA, CCPA doesn't go into effect till next year? Am I right about that? 
the CCPA takes effect on January 1st. Okay. And the attorney general just uh, within the last two days released their proposed guidelines for how they're going to require people to adhere to CCPA. So that is all starting to solidify. Companies need to be compliant as of January 1st, even if there isn't going to be action right away, because that one, private right to action will still take effect January 1st. And two, it's a look back. So if the attorney general says we're not going to start doing anything till July, that still means that anything that was not in compliance on January 1st is eligible, shall we say, for some extra special time with our (laughs) attorney general's department. And so, what, I mean, I remember when, you know, we had, and, and I love how much warning the attorney general is get, are giving businesses, right? It, it just came out, you get three months, basically, two and a half months before it goes into effect to, to make the changes you need to make. Same kind of stuff we dealt with with GDPR. We had to do a complete sweep of our database and, and all types of things. What are companies going to have to do in the next few months to make sure that as of January 1, they are in compliance? What kind of impact is it going to have on them? I tend to break it down into four areas. The way I think about it in terms of beginning your compliance journey is that you've got to have a map. You need to know what data is where, and that's kind of your starting point to your compliance journey. If you don't know what data you have and where it is and who has access to it, then you can't possibly say we are or are not compliant, right? And then the second piece to that is once you understand that piece of it, then you need to start understanding what is the criticality of that data. And you know, under GDPR, there's this concept of legal basis. Do you have a legal right to have that data? Right. So that's kind of the second piece to it. And then the third piece is understanding the technology in place and your uh, measures under GDPR. That's called TOMS or technical and operational measures, but CCPA more generically defines it as, are you putting security into place to help protect the data and make sure that nothing happens to it? And then from there, you perform kind of a understanding of it and audits, and you have all of those pieces in place. So that's kind of the four basic areas that you need to think about as it relates to privacy. There are some technical pieces that you have to take into account. Everybody's expected that has a website and does business online. Everybody is expected to have an opt-out button for people who don't want their information sold under CCPA when it goes into effect. Uh, You also need to be able to provide an 800 number. And you also have to have the ability to acknowledge a request for deletion of your data within 10 days. And then you need to either act on it within a total of 45 days, or you can get an additional 45-day extension with a request for that extension and a logical reason for it. So those are the pieces that really kind of have to take place in order to get to a level of compliance where... If the AG comes looking or if it starts to go to court, you can show reasonable um, attempts to meet the level of requirements that CCPA puts into place. With that said, 
I don't have a JD. I'm not a lawyer. This isn't legal advice. This is my take on how to go about the journey. Right. Absolutely. Let's be very clear. This podcast is not providing legal advice of any description. We are simply discussing a topic. What you choose to do with this information is completely on you. Now, having said that, that's a hell of a big lift for companies to have to, to be able to do that. And if they have, you know, we, we both know not everybody has the compliance departments, the size, uh, equipped to the way they should be. But even if they did, even if they did have an, an internal compliance team, isn't having an internal compliance team kind of like the fox guard in the hen house? No, it's not because they still have to meet external compliance. And when somebody comes calling, they're going to be held account to it. So there is still a need for that. Now, uh, GDPR has some rules in place that help to manage the fox and the hen house relationship in that once you determine your uh, data protection officer, that person is accountable to the board. And it's not somebody who can be let go for reasons outside of their data protection um, mandate, if you will. So California doesn't currently have anything like that in place for CCPA. And the 18 other states that have legislation on the books or have passed legislation don't really have that idea in place. However, because it's an external audit that will take place at the time of questioning, shall we say, there still has to be a, you need to determine your level of compliance and make sure that you are comfortable with your risk based on what your current environment is. Okay. Okay. And so what are the challenges that, you know, why, why would somebody not have external compliance? Like, so I, I mean, get, I get doing the work and then there's the audit, there's the there's the the body that will depend determine whether or not you're in compliance. But we all know the closer you are to something, the easier it is to miss things. So is there a better balance to be had with an internal compliance team working with an outside vendor, maybe like you guys or somebody else that can also provide a, a level of, of, I don't want to say oversight, but double checking because we're talking about some pretty significant exposure. So I would think the goal would be to mitigate risk as much as possible. And so do you think there are organizations that benefit from having that internal compliance and then working with an outside agency that can give them a different set of eyes before they get called in front of the AG or, or get questioned, so to speak? Absolutely. The key to understanding compliance in general is that it can't be that guy. Chad, you're now the privacy guy. You hold compliance for the entire organization. It's just not scalable. So there has to be other tools and capabilities in place. And like I said, 18 states, 18 states have or have passed or are looking to pass privacy laws of some kind. And you don't have a least common denominator or most common denominator, perhaps, where you can turn around and you can say, hey, if I meet the requirements of X, I'll have met the requirements for everybody else because there's nuances to those different laws. There's uh, constantly changing environments that take place. I mean, the reason why we didn't get the information from the attorney general until two days ago is it took until the end of September to decide was CCPA really going to go into effect as written and what changes were going to be made to the CCPA before it went into effect. So it's a constantly changing landscape and it's way too complex for a person or even a small team to handle themselves. They need help. 
And some of that help can and should be technology. If you're managing it out of spreadsheets, your privacy compliance was out of date about four seconds after you hit save on the spreadsheet, <laughs> right? Especially if you had more than two salespeople in the company, then it was probably even less than that. Right. And so you can't manage that out of spreadsheets. And the requirements are going to get more and more difficult. Your ability to respond is going to grow monumentally or your need to respond is going to grow monumentally. There was a recent gaffe by a gaming company, Blizzard, who basically censored a pro Hong Kong democracy gamer and took away that person's winnings because of the statements they made. Well, the gaming community made an attempt to weaponize data subject requests with that company out of Europe by basically saying, let's flood them with requests. And if they can't meet the minimum time requirement, then they're going to get fined. If you don't have good processes in place and the technology in place to be able to respond to those requests with appropriate workflows that ensure that that timeliness is met and you've got a guy and outlook, you're sunk. And the auditor isn't going to come in and say, well, yeah, you did get a bunch all at once. I guess I can forgive you for that. They're going to say you didn't have the systems in place to be able to respond. So those tools are absolutely critical for the ability to scale appropriately. And, you know, the CCPA only affects the fifth largest economy in the world. So, <laughs> right. Well, I mean, uh, think about small. it. You're talking, 18, I mean, we got GDPR, CCPA. You've got 18 other states. That they're not all the same. They're all going to be different. So you, you very quickly get to a level of regulatory morass that is almost impossible to navigate with 100% certainty unless there is a technology element that helps you do it. And then I hadn't even thought about weaponizing the the regulatory environment, uh, like what happened to Blizzard. Like, the, So there's so many elements that this creates for organizations and it, it, it opens some pretty big risk if they don't take care of it. I mean, fallout could be pretty significant. So the question becomes, what does it look like when you, when you work with a client? Can you give us an example of, of what it looks like and maybe make it a little more sticky for the audience? Sure. So as I said, you know, I, I, I broke down the four areas that we kind of tend to think about the uh, uh, privacy compliance journey. There's a bunch of technology that can help we take, as I said, a very holistic view at To Be Advice. Our prime software can do all of the things that you need to do as it relates to privacy compliance, including determine the timelines that you need to respond and ensure that you're meeting those timelines for response to data subject requests or for, um, from requests for, from data protection authorities. We can help with statements. You need to have a privacy statement on your website. Privacy statements are typically written by lawyers, and each each company needs to have its own privacy statement. We work with a very large pharmaceutical company, highly recognizable name, European uh, foundation, if you will. They have hundreds of subsidiaries, and those hundreds of subsidiaries have different properties like websites, social media, you know, apps on app stores, and all of those need their own privacy statements. Well, if you were to go to a lawyer and say, we need literally thousands of statements, you're talking about years of work to get that work done for a guy, or you're talking about a lot of people who are having to work on it all at once to make sure that it's compliant. 
what we were able to do for that company is basically create a privacy statement generator that allowed them to generate the statements across all of their companies, across all of their different platforms, social apps, websites, etc. And it didn't require it to be written each time from the legal department. The legal department essentially helped to build the library that it was a matter of pick and choose. These are the requirements we need to meet. And the statement was automatically generated. That's hundreds of hours of savings in legal time, if you will. And that's just one example. We've worked with another large European bank and we do everything for them. We take care of their assessments, internal assessments and audits around privacy. We make sure that their statements are up to date. We make sure that we act as an external data protection officer for them. We basically do it all for them. So we can basically break it down to the need you currently have and work within that need and give you the tool to be able to do the holistic privacy journey within the organization and make that kind of many hands make light work work for you. I mean, I started thinking about compliance in general, just around the data privacy stuff. The skill sets of the individuals that are in internal compliance organizations, what's their background? Like, I mean, how do you, is there an, or is there a university somewhere that, that, that <laughs> gives you a degree on this is how to do compliance? Because it just, it sounds so almost overwhelming to me. I'm kind of curious, what are the, what are the backgrounds of the people that are going into this field and, and being successful at it? So the people who are working as privacy professionals within companies tend to be lawyers. That's Uh, their background. But to put it into perspective, it's such a developing ecosystem right now that uh, there's just not enough people who have the privacy background and experience. And that's evidenced by the largest independent body for certifying privacy professionals just reached the 25,000 certifications mark. Just reached 25,000. You think about the number of businesses in California alone, and you couldn't hire, you you couldn't find people based on that 25,000 to be able to saturate that one market. Now you start including Europe and the entire rest of the world and in other states within the United States. And it's just, there is not enough skill out there today to be able to handle compliance properly within an organization. Wow. Excellent. Excellent. All right. Let's change direction here a little bit. Ask all of our guests two standard questions at the end of each interview. The first simply as an executive, and I know you're in sales, but as an executive, that makes you a prospect. And so I'm always curious to find out if somebody doesn't have a relationship, like there's no referral in, you haven't met them in an event or, or anything like that. What is the most effective way for someone to capture your attention and earn the right to, you know, 10, 15, 20 minutes on your calendar? This is going to sound like an incredibly common answer to the listeners of your podcast. Do your research and authenticity, right? And and there's a reason why almost every single person you bring on board says those same two things. (laughs) Too often, I get what I thought I had coined as fa or fauthenticity. It's already an existing term, so I can't take credit for it, where there's an attempt to come across as, hey, I know you and I know your company because I typed in your URL and I saw your most recent LinkedIn post and I'm going to try and sort of kind of make those relate to the fact that I'm selling you something. Isn't going to work. If you 
actually do your homework on me and hit me up in a way that isn't the generic templated LinkedIn in mail to try and get me to either schedule an appointment or buy your software, I'm going to engage with you. I engage with pretty much everybody that has an interest on LinkedIn that doesn't try to can sell me right out the gate. Oh, perfect. Love it. And it is one of the most popular, it is one of the most popular answers, but it is one that most people still don't pay attention to. All right. So last question, we call it our acceleration insight. If there's one thing, one piece of advice you could tell sales or marketing or, or professional services people, one piece of advice that if they listened, you believe it would help them crush their targets. What would it be and why? I think I kind of already gave the answer. Do your homework. It, you know, selling, uh, selling is about the people, you know, people, uh, you may have heard this before, Chad, but people make logical decisions for emotional reasons and <laughs> you don't have positive emotions with machines or with automated systems. The positive emotions come from people genuinely, authentically engaging with other people, right? You buy from people. You make decisions based on your interactions with people. So do your homework on the person and engage with them authentically. Love it. Love it. Don, if somebody's interested in talking more about these topics or learning more about 2B advice, where do you want us to send them? Do you want them to hit the website, hit you on LinkedIn? What works best for you? Hit me up on LinkedIn. I will connect with just about anybody at this point. And so I'm happy to have a conversation and I have contact details on my LinkedIn page. So I'm happy to talk. Excellent. Thank you so much for taking time. It's been a blast having you on the show. Thanks so much, Chad. As always, it's great talking to you. All right, everybody, that does it for this episode. You know the drill. Check us out at b2brevexec.com. Share the episode with friends, family, and coworkers. If you like what you hear, do us a favor, leave us a review. And until next time, we at Value Selling Associates wish you all nothing but the greatest success. You've been listening to the B2B Revenue Executive Experience. To ensure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show on iTunes or your favorite podcast player. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.